Um, we're in a series called Hey Jude, and we're walking through the book of Jude. And this has been already last week, we read the entire chapter. And I'm gonna dip into the first part of that and, and really just settle on it for a second. In Jude chapter one, verse three, the Bible says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would prepare our hearts to hear your word, to, for it to unlock in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Powerful, powerful Jude. What a great book, and it's so so short. You could read it. I, I encourage you to go back and read it uh, after you hear today's message and really get the full context of what we read last week if you weren't here. I never, ever saw this coming. Like, never saw it coming. And if you were like me, when I was in high school and I saw Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and Keanu Reeves, what's up, dude? I would have never seen John Wick coming. I would have never seen it, right? But there was a moment that transformed Keanu Reeves' acting career, in my humble opinion, that turned the corner from what's up, dude, to snarling psychopath in John Wick, and it was The Matrix, 1999. Come on, anybody. I watched it with my kids the other day. It holds, it stands up, it really does. It's a great movie. I can't remember if there's anything bad in it. Okay, anyway, I love, I love one scene, and I think it is kind of this, this scene that exists beyond the movie. It's, it's made its way even into our culture. It's the scene where Neo is sitting in front of Morpheus and Morpheus basically says, everything you think you know about the world is wrong. You've been living in a dream. You've been hooked up to the matrix. There's a reality that you've been missing. And he holds out these two pills, one red, one blue. He says, you take the blue pill, you go back to sleep, you go comfortably back into the matrix, and you don't realize what's going on, you're blind to it all, and you can just live oblivious. Now here's the red pill. You take the red pill, and you wake up. And you can see what's happening, and you experience the world as it really is, no more living in this la-la land. You can see life for what it is. You get to choose. Jude, in his letter, written thousands of years before that conversation between Neo and Morpheus, <laughs> Jude is basically saying in his letter, choose the red pill. Choose the red pill, wake up to the deception that you've been living in. 
Morpheus was telling Neo, you're living in a lie. You've been deceived. Wake up. Wake up. Red pill, wake up. And that's what we see with Jude. Deception is real. Deception woos you away from reality, causes you to live in almost an alternate universe that is not corresponding to God's reality for you. Deception. Deception is no new thing. It is an old, old, old tactic from the beginning of human time. John chapter eight, verse 44, Jesus said, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. By the way, that's Jesus preaching there. <laughs> that's some hard preaching, just in case, just a thought. He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and he has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Satan's dominant strategy is to deceive. 2 Corinthians eleven three. 3. But I am afraid, this is Paul talking now, doubling down on what Jesus was saying, building on it. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. This beautiful walk with Jesus that you have, deception like a magnetic pull will pull you away from your faith. Deception. Deception is something that the first century church took very, very seriously. Even the Apostle Paul, he named, hey, this, this coppersmith over here, he's been leading people astray, he's injured me greatly, named him by name. So if you're, uh, if you're, if you're thinking that that is not something that was happening in the first century church, think again. Deception was something that they were dealing with, deception was something that Jude was dealing with, and Jude got very, very specific, like Paul, where Paul named it, he called it out, Jude calls it out here. And I wanna walk through the three characteristics of those that were deceiving that first century church. Remember, Jude is a letter to a church. Jude is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Mary and Joseph had a kid, had four kids actually, and James, who wrote part of our Bible, was one of the kids of Mary and Joseph, and Jude was a child of Mary and Joseph. That made him a half-brother of Jesus because Jesus is divine born of a virgin, Mary. Okay, that's a little catch up from last week. So Jude here is pointing out to this church that he loves, and he's writing to this church forever for us to get in on this conversation. He's saying there's three things that, about how you're being deceived, three characteristics of the deceivers in your life. Number one, ungodly people, he says in verse four. They are ungodly, ungodly. If you grew up in church, that's a word that you're familiar with. I don't even need to explain it to you. Ungodly means what you know ungodly means. But I know many of us, Keystone's your first stop in your church journey. It's the place where you found your faith. And so I wanna explain to you what ungodly means. It's really simple, it means not like God. The greatest way you can figure out if something is godly or ungodly is could you imagine Jesus doing it? Does this line up? If Christ were walking with you while you're doing that thing, when you're living your life, when, if Christ were walking with you, could he walk with you into that party? Could he walk with you into that enjoyment? Could he walk with you into that behavior, how you entertain yourself, whatever it is? Could he stand there and tolerate the conversation you're having about that other person? 
it's either godly or it's ungodly. And so if you ever hear someone talk about that's just ungodly, they probably grew up in church, number one. And number two, that just means it's not like Jesus. It's, we used to have this little wristband, what would Jesus do? WWJD, what would Jesus do? Godly or ungodly? 2 Timothy 3.5 says that there are people having the appearance of godliness but denying its power avoid such people. Wow. Is it possible that there are some people that know how to walk the walk, they know how to talk the talk, they're in the Father's house, but they are very far from the Father's heart. That's the first characteristic, ungodly. Be careful, <clears throat> just being in the house doesn't make you godly. Perfect church attendance doesn't make you godly. Be careful that it's a matter of the heart. Matter of the heart. Where is your heart? Second characteristic that we see, they crept in, verse four, unnoticed. He said, hey guys, these are the people, they've, they've crept in unnoticed. It's, it's just all of a sudden, wham, they've crept in. They're not like God. You're hanging with them like all the time. You're participating in the gossip. You're participating in what we'll see later at the love feasts. You're participating in this stuff and it's kind of been a slow boil for you. You know, you know that analogy, the slow, slow boil, like the frog in the kettle. If you just put them into hot water, the frog will just jump right out, but put it in the water with the water cold and then it slowly boils and the frog gets tired and then it gets sleepy, sleepy and right before it's too late, the frog's too tired, lost all its energy, can't get out of the water. Really disgusting analogy, really. It's probably bothersome to some people listening. But, but I believe that's what's happening with us. We have truth that's creeping in unnoticed. <clears throat> the people that we're listening to, the blogs that we're, the blogs that we're reading, the podcasts that we're listening to, the books that we're reading, I would say that it's really important, these things. You know, when I was... Uh, 16 years old, I had a metabolism that just would not stop. It was fantastic. <laughs> Even when we got married, my wife, Susan, she was like, man, I don't think you can gain weight. I mean, I was just this little slender dude and I just could eat whatever I want. <clears throat> I was getting my master's degree and I, every day I, I was working at the church and I was, I was working at a church and I was getting my master's degree to prepare for ministry and you know, learn the word of God better and all that. And so I would get, I would study up and then I would, on my way to church to work, I was working with college students at the time, I would just swing by doggone Wendy's, hello. I'd get me that Wendy's double cheeseburger fries. I can taste it now. Every, and that's not so bad like every once in a while. No, this was every day. And bam, it didn't impact me at all. I got married. And I kept that pattern up and I kept doing it because I'm busier than I've ever been. I'm, I'm trying to make it work. I'm trying to get it going. And all of a sudden, my body started changing. <laughs> right? Because I had a steady diet. I had a, a, a doctor's appointment and that doctor came in and began to give me some hard news and the nurse was in there and they were, yeah, you know, echoing the hard news and, you know, that nurse was mean. I just wanna, <laughs> I mean, 
social dysfunction with that person. I don't know. They had no bedside manner, but they scared me straight, and I began to change my diet. I began to change my diet. And I'd say be careful what your diet of truth is. Be very careful what your diet of truth is. Oh, but she's so cute and she's so funny and when she talks, I feel like <coughs> she's my best friend or she's my sister, but she's feeding you deception. She's feeding you lies. And yes, she's funny and yes, he's funny and yes, he's insightful and yes, he says something. You're like, I believe that. And you may believe 10% of what he's saying and it may, really may be believable 10%, but what about the 90? And where does that truth come from? It's such a rampant problem, this deception creeping in unnoticed, under the radar. And then he says in verse four, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. This is where those love feasts came in. He talked about these love feasts later <clears throat> in, the, in the letter, and he basically, what's happening is, now he starts landing the plane on once they had crept in and we're good friends and we're hanging out and we're so funny and, and you're, you're sitting here and you're listening, this is Jude's experience. They're listening to these people that are now in their small group and somehow they're, they're leading the small group and, and they begin to take a little twist on the word of God. And you're a new believer and so you're listening and they begin to talk about the word of God and this is what I believe that that first century church was getting in their small group, in, a, in, a, in the casual conversations, in people that they had come to love socially were now people that were in, informing them theologically, and this is what they were being taught. They were being taught about grace. Now, grace is a gift that you didn't earn or deserve. On the cross, God has given you grace. You're getting grace on the cross. Grace is unmerited favor. I didn't earn salvation. I didn't earn a home in heaven when I die. I earned forever separation from God. I didn't earn blessings in this life with the fruit of the Spirit. I earned curse, cursings in this life by the sowing of my own flesh. And there comes a point where you realize not only did Jesus save me forever, but he blesses me daily. Grace. And the truth of the teaching of grace is that on the cross you were on his mind. The truth of the teaching is that when he was on the cross, he was paying for all of your sins. And all of that is true. Here's where the lie comes in. Well, if Jesus paid for all of your sins on the cross, and he knew what you would do anyway, and if you've been adopted in his family and you'll never be lost again, you can never lose that salvation, you're a son of the Most High God, he already paid for all your sin, you are righteous before the Father, then here's the lie. You ready? Do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want, and it doesn't matter, because he, he paid for it. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. So send your brains out every day, because you're washed as white as snow. That was the lie. And it betrays the true core of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he did not save you to be just this robotic participant in God's economy. He came on a love mission for you. He loves you. And when you're really saved, guess what? You love him back. 
You're responding to his grace and it's a love relationship built on trust. It's like this lie is almost like being married to someone you know will never divorce you and cheating on them because you know they'll never divorce you anyway. But that's no relationship, this infidelity relationship. So that was the lie that they were dealing with. What about us? This sin into sensuality. For them, they were buying that lie that, that because of grace I can do whatever I want, which led them into these love feasts where they were crossing the line of sensuality, whatever that mean, meant for them. I know that there's some signs of what it means for us. We talked about it in the series previous where we were unlocking Romans chapter one, talking about good gift, bad God, that there is a sensuality that grips our culture and we need to be very careful about this lie of lust. The sex God. This lie of lust, the sex God, and we need to be very careful about sensuality in our hearts. That's why the Bible talks about modesty, like how we dress. Do we dress to attract people? Do we dress in a way where, you know, we talk about, oh, that's so sexy. Oh, I think that's sexy. Well, are you, are you, are you dressing in a way to try to ignite lust in the opposite sex? And right now I'm clearly talking to all the men. <laughs> Just wanna make that clear. Guys. <laughs> Truthfully though, the posts, is there, a, is there a, a, kind of a sensuality coming out of your posts? Right? Is there just something seething coming out of those posts where it's almost like there's no distinction between you and an influencer over here igniting lust? We're, we're copying the culture because that's what gets likes and follows. Careful, careful, careful. Now the church has responded <clears throat> on the opposite, really too extreme on this point. Can I just go ahead and lay that out? If you've grown up in church, particularly you probably, you might have been in one of those churches that went too far on correcting sensuality. Too far would be like when I went to summer camp, student camp, and I was wearing jorts <laughs> or jams. I'm waiting on somebody. What were, the were the, what were the things called? Were that jams, like all the way down here? Was there another word for it? No, just jams, okay. My mom had to make our jams because we couldn't afford the real ones, but. <clears throat> Anyway, we, we had them all the way down here and they would take a dollar bill at camp and they would put it on your kneecap to see if the shorts were long enough. But if it shrunk above, oh no, above that dollar, everybody's gonna melt. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Okay, some of you, some of you. This section is new to Keystone, all right. Yeah. So we can go too far, right? We can go too far. So what's the rule? Don't you want the rule? Don't you want it? Okay, here's how many buttons down. Here's how low, or how high, how low. You know, what's, where does the Bible? Guess what? It's a discernment issue. We need the Holy Spirit. I don't know what you do without the Holy Spirit. I know the principles. You don't wanna ignite lust. You don't wanna live in sensuality. So check your heart. Check your heart. Really, just check your heart. Just lean in for the Lord. Fashion is a beautiful thing. And different cultures express it differently. Can we leave room for that too? Different cultures, different parts of America, different parts of the world, they express it differently. And we're gonna leave room for that. 
and we're not gonna be judgy bullhorn Christians. You're going to hell. You know, we're not gonna do that. But there is, I'm talking about the heart and you've gotta evaluate, where's my heart, right? Are there any teenagers listening to me right now? Where's my heart when I post? Where's my heart when I dress? Am I just dressing because everybody else is doing it that way? Let's do it different, all right. Pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. All right, so we see Jude here taking these lies very, very seriously, and that is a biblical pattern. Look at Colossians chapter two, verse eight. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to uh, the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. First Peter 3.15, the Bible says, but in your hearts now honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Do it with gentleness and respect. So don't be mean, but know your truth in the world of deception. And then 2 Corinthians 10, 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion, those are the deceptions, raised against the knowledge of God, that's the word of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So here we see the life of the mind is important. What we think about is important. I've said for years, the most important thought you'll ever think about is what you think about when you think of God. It guides every single part of your life. So an evaluation for us today as we walk out of here, have I been deceived? Am I buying empty philosophy? Or am I allowing my thoughts to be submitted to Christ? I mentioned Paul, how he pointed it out. John, the apostle John, in his letters, there's a dominant theme. He's addressing Gnosticism, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M. Gnosticism, Gnosticism. Oh, tell you, I can spell <laughs> Gnosticism. And, and he was dealing with that. I'm not gonna go into what that was, but he was dealing with that in the church. That was this thing that basically there wasn't a bodily resurrection or there was the, the flesh is bad, but the spirit is good and this dualism. Moving on. The point is that he dealt with it in his letters and he talks about false teachers all throughout his letters. John, the one who Christ loved, the Bible says. He kind of wrote that about himself too, by the way, I just want to say. <laughs> Mark did not say that. <clears throat> so what about, what about the New Testament church, the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15? They were dealing with <clears throat> the nature of salvation. Even among those first century Christians, you had the Jewish Christians coming in conflict with the Gentile Christians. You had people that were throughout the Roman Empire coming to faith in Christ. They didn't grow up in, these, in this Jewish culture. And the Jewish culture had to get rid of some of the things that they were bringing into Christianity because they were saying it's Jesus plus works equals salvation. But we know it's Jesus plus absolutely nothing gives you everything. So they had a council, they had a get together with all the bishops, that would be all the, what we would call the episcopa, the episcopoi, that is that single pastor of a church that leads that church. All of those single pastors came together, the episcopos, they, the episcopoi, they came together and they decided on the nature of salvation, which is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You see the Apostles' Creed outside of the Bible. Once the Bible was finished, outside of the Bible, we, they kept defending the faith. They kept watching for deception. 
the Apostles' Creed in, uh, in AD 120 through AD 150, the Nicene Creed, 325 AD, the Chalcedonian Creed in 451 AD, the Athanasian Creed in 500 AD. We see it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Why? You see all of this, and it kept going. I'm just stopping in, in Christian history. That you see in the early church, they understood that there is a magnetic pull away from truth. That even, not just personally for you, but entire congregations, whole churches, local churches can be pulled away from truth. And not just local churches, but regional movements of God and even global Christianity, that if we allow it, it'll pull us away from truth and we've gotta come to a place we understand sometimes we have to remind ourselves that we are not based on the whims of the philosophy of the day, but at times the word of God will stand in contrast to the culture and the philosophies of the day. This is our pattern. And so what we're doing today, reading in the book of Jude, is nothing new. We're in orthodox pattern of understanding. We've gotta call out deception. And today I wanna point out two areas of deception. I could give you a list. <laughs> longer, but I want to point out two areas that God has laid on my heart. The first is this temptation where we would, you would hear somebody say, hey, when it comes to preaching, when it comes to church, we just need to focus on the love of God. We need to focus on the love of God. Now I'm about to challenge you because some of you are like, what's wrong with that? Hang on. Brandon, we just need to focus on the love of God and not on fill in the blank. When the fill in the blank of the not on is biblical, then you're in error. Okay, for example, we need to focus on the love of God and not on all this sin. Always talking about sin. We need to focus on the love of God and we don't need to talk about sex in America. We need to focus on the love of God and let's quit talking about giving. We need to focus on the love of God, not repentance from sin, but when you understand that the turning from your sin and God pointing out your sin is the love of God. It's the love of God, my goodness. If I have a little toddler and they're running for the pool and they can't swim, I'm not going to politely keep them from danger. Oh, little Charlie, don't run. <laughs> I'm running. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, Charlie. I don't have a kid named Charlie, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> right? Urgency. Sometimes we are so polite, we're not helpful. We're so polite, we're just not helpful. There comes a point where you need to be helpful. Now, I'm not talking about me, and again, I'm gonna say it over and over again so you don't miss my heart. I'm not talking about mean. What did he say? Do it with peace and understanding. We, we need to have a right heart, but understand there's an urgency that, that this deception is ruining people's faith. Today in Christian culture, we call it deconstruction. I'm just deconstructing my faith. I've never seen somebody closer to the Lord after you deconstructed it. It's always further. It's always lost. It's always adrift. And ultimately unbiblical, if even in the faith, after you deconstructed it. Let me tell you something, you cannot deconstruct what God constructs. Now I'm not saying that you're not gonna go through seasons of challenge and you need to ask questions, that is not what we're saying. But we are saying is where you take 
what the word of God has said for 2,000 years and all of a sudden you have a new word. If you have somebody teaching you, hey, I know you've never seen this and the church has never seen this for 2,000 years but I have a fresh understanding of what this passage means. After 2,000 years, Oh, so you're smarter than Augustine. You're smarter than Calvin. You're smarter than Matthew Henry. You're smarter. I mean, just keep going. It's incredible pride and danger. Again, Jude took us on a bumpy road here of truth, and we've got to embrace it. We've got to understand it. Just focus on the love of God. Let's stop talking about these social issues. Focus on, here's one, focus on the love of God. Let's not be political, okay? Let's just focus on the love of God. Let's not be political. Now, I wanna help you with this. If I was the devil and I wanted to silence the church, just take a scheme that I have and call it political. And then you can't talk about it. If I'm the devil, and I want abortion to run rampant. Call abortion a political issue, and all of a sudden we can't talk about human life from the pulpit. If I was the devil, that's what I would, it's easy. I mean, that's a layup, that's not even hard. Here's what I'll tell you. If I've got a politician or a party that's willing to stand for human life, then I'm gonna thumbs up them on that issue. I'm gonna say that. And if I've got a party or a politician who's gonna stand for human dignity and justice for all, I'm gonna thumbs up that party, that politician. Do you know what that means? You're gonna tick everybody off as a Christ follower because we are kingdom first, not political party first. We are the ones standing here, and if a, if, if a party that once agreed with the kingdom now doesn't agree with the kingdom, bye, bye, bye. Just go boy band on them. Bye, bye, bye. Our allegiance is not to a politician because our politicians tend to go up and down and around and away. Our allegiance is to the person, King Jesus. And I believe King Jesus would fight for babies. I believe King Jesus would fight for justice. I believe King Jesus would see everybody with dignity. I believe King Jesus would say there is a such a thing as law and order. I believe King Jesus would see the humanity in the midst of all of this broken world. But I believe G Jesus would also see that order is better than anarchy. So let's just talk about the love of God. You know what that means? I wanna go to the gym, but I don't wanna do anything hard. I wanna to go to the gym. This is the silliness of this thought. I wanna to go to the gym, I wanna walk in, walk around, get a water, drink it, and then leave. <laughs> and I wanna to go, to, I wanna say I went to the gym, but nothing happened. Why do you think you're weak? There's no work. There's no work, you had no leg day. You're like me, I only work up the top. No leg day, you gotta work out. You know what working out is in today's application? You need to receive challenge to what culture is saying. So I'm, I'm going a little long on this point. I wanna get to the next point. 
But only flowery language and self-help will lead to a malnourished soul. We gotta receive challenge to understand, I'm wrong here, I'm wrong here. Here's another error, and I'm gonna get a little philosophical here, so just bear with me, but I'm led to do it. So, But another error that's in our culture today, I, I, I can't believe it's here. I studied it when I was getting my doctorate, um, and I, I studied what's called postmodernism. And at that time, I was studying people like Derrida and the deconstruction of language and meaning and, and all that kind of stuff. I know y'all are already just... <laughs> but, and I, ne- I say that to say I never thought that real, normal, everyday people would have to encounter this philosophy. I never thought it would make it to Main Street. I always thought it would be limited in academia and like 12 professors would be debating hotly about it. But I never thought, well today, if it's, if it's a storm that I thought would never hit land, it's a hurricane that won't go away. And it's postmodern thought, which is the deconstruction of truth that basically takes personal experience and lifts it up as truth. Another way to say it is neo-Marxism. Another way to say it is wokeism. And it basically says that truth is based on, and on this I do agree, that we all have a worldview. We all have a worldview. How do you shape your worldview? The Christian says, I have a worldview and my worldview is shaped by the word of God because I'm uncertain. I'll drift around, I'll move around. I need the word of God as my anchor. This is my worldview and so I can stand up with people 2,000 years ago and we're on the same worldview because this is God's worldview and his word never changes. Uh, Postmodernism, neo-Marxism, wokeism, it basically says, no, the filter is not the Bible, the filter is power. He who has the power and he who does not have the power. And at the beginning of the conversation, it is, and this is where most people are drawn in, he who has the power is oppressing the one who does not have the power. So we must lift the one who does not have the power and overthrow the oppressor who does have the power. I feel like I sound like Russell Brand right now. <laughs> and, and I'm gonna get there, just hang with me. You need to hear this. And in doing so, in order to take marginalized people and people that are under the thumb of someone else's power, I need to divide people according to identity. I need to divide people into this group versus that group, that group versus this group. And that was the great experiment of the Soviet Union, which did not lead to everybody being equal and harmonious and happy. It led to those that they cynically used to get power, to give it back to the people who had power in the first place so that they could oppress everybody else. It is fundamentalism at its worst. Forcing you what to believe or you'll lose your job. Forcing you what to do or you'll get kicked out. Forcing you how to behave or you're gonna be marginalized. That is what we're talking about. And believe it or not, it actually has made itself into the church. In our culture, this is brutal. Uh, I'll give you an example. It's kind of like massive groupthink. If you've noticed, like, how does everybody believe this? when five years ago we all didn't believe this, right? How does everybody believe this? And five years ago we didn't believe this. How do we get to the place where California in 2022 signed into law a bill that says that if you're a child under 18 and you wanna experience gender transition therapy you, and your state won't allow that, you can flee to California as a sanctuary and no law can keep you from getting the therapy you want here without a parent's approval without a parental signature. How do we get to that place where such groupthink is that they would vote for that and sign it into law? How did that happen? 
that you could say that a child could make decisions that would forever change their life, biologically, physically, when they're going through a season of their life where we're all trying to figure out who we are. That's, that's not love, that's not caring, but group thinks that an entire state, our largest state, said, yeah, that's what we wanna do. Now, again, uh-oh, here we are, going political. No, I think that's a kingdom issue. I think it's a kingdom issue that says that's just evil. That's wrong. That's not okay. And again, we're not hating on people that are trying to figure out who they are. We would love to walk with you through that. We would love to walk with you lovingly through that. And if you've been, if you're one of the people that made a decision very, very early on and you've gone through that or you know somebody that has and now you regret it, by the way, that's a growing number of people and you've made decisions that are now forever affecting your reproduction, now forever impacting your emotional health, we wanna walk with you. We wanna welcome you with open arms. We wanna help, help you as you seek to detransition. We wanna love you through that, right? You see, here's the deal. It's like a sword. There's the social issue, or what I would call the kingdom issue. The kingdom issue and abortion. The kingdom issue, that's jacked up, children having gender therapy. The kingdom issue, and then there's the humanity of it. Some people only wanna see the issue and they refuse to see the humanity. Other people only wanna see the humanity and they refuse to see the kingdom truth. At Keystone, we say you don't have to choose. Let's have God's truth and let's see his sweet people. You see, we're not gonna work real well in Washington <laughs> because we serve a bigger kingdom. But this is making its way like a deceit Judges chapter, <clears throat> Judges chapter 21, verse 25, the Bible says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this is, this is it. You think, oh, this new, this new philosophy, this wokeism, this neo-Marxism, this postmodernism. where did it come from? It's an old spirit. It's an old demonic spirit that says, you don't need God. You get to make up your own truth. And you certainly don't need the word of God telling you that you can't have sex with who you wanna have sex with. You don't need the word of God telling you that you stay in that marriage. You don't need the word of God telling you that. And that's the lie, and that's where we're at. <clears throat> Based on division, all of these things, all of this, this is a, this is a heavy stuff, and there, there's a warning to it. I wanna, I wanna finish with this, Ephesians 4 says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. See, all over you see it. This is a threat, this is big. And then Jude said this in verses 12 and 13. Talking about deceit, listen to the beauty of this language. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. If you try to board a plane and you forgot you had your gun, by the way, don't do that. <laughs> Barry Switzer, don't do that. What, that becomes a big deal at TSA. Big deal. If you scream fire in a theater, big deal. Or in a crowd, big deal. People can get hurt. 
you have a, you have a lot of drinks and you're out and you're partying and you're drinking and you're getting buzzed and you're getting drunk, you get behind the wheel of a car, big deal. When those lights come on and you get pulled over, you're hitting the curb, brother. It's different than speeding. You wanna know why? Because it's a bigger deal. It's more destructive. It's more dangerous. Here Judas saying, don't neglect the destructive pull of deceit. We are one generation away from total running from Jesus. Listen, if you're soft right now, your children will be negligible in their faith. Their children, your grandkids, will mock you for your faith. They'll want nothing to do with it. They'll eye roll every Christmas you beg them to come. Why? Because we allowed deceit to gravitationally pull away a generation. And God says, that's dangerous. That means there's a whole generation of people that don't know me. And when people don't know God, the culture swerves into darkness. Here's what I'll tell you. Ideas have consequences, and bad ideas have victims. And today, my prayer for us would be that we'd get the right ideas because God, His ideas for you, lift, enlighten, and bring life. Can we pray together? As you bow your head, I wanna tell you about something that we wanna offer to you today. That at the end of our time together, we're about to sing as everybody else is leaving to go to lunch or hang out, as everyone else is walking out, we'll have prayer team up here to pray with you if you'd like to walk forward, minister to you for anything at all. Maybe something today touched your heart. Maybe something today pricked your spirit. Or maybe it's not necessarily anchored to today. Maybe it's anchored to something bigger than today. It's something that's going on. We wanna pray with you. Father, I pray for a sense of renewal, diligence, care. Who are the people that I'm listening to? When I need wisdom, where do I go? Just fun people or people that love the Word of God? Father, I pray that as we seek out truth, that we be aware of the areas where we've been deceived. And Father, I pray that we would cling to you, find truth, and embrace you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.